I want us to open our Bibles to Matthew 27. <clears throat> Excuse me if I sound a little froggy. I've been breathing and eating um, drywall dust. <clears throat> I don't know how Neil sang today, but he did it. Matthew 27, verses 45 through 52. And I want to start a series this Sunday, now today, on the gospel. And I want to, this is just something I've been praying about. Like, what is the Lord's mind for this church? What is the Lord, what does the Spirit want to say to the church? And I just have to pray for me as I, you know, and if, if God puts something on your heart that you'd like to hear preached on, please talk to me about it. I'm not monopolizing here what God is saying to the church, but I, if, you, if you feel like that you'd like to hear a certain theme or just something hit, so let me know. And the gospel, I just want to do on the next six Sundays, I want to do a series by the grace of God. And what is the gospel? And the last Sunday, the sixth Sunday, will land on Christmas Eve Sunday. Isn't that cool? Christmas Eve this year is on Sunday. And so we'll have a Christmas, we'll have a Christmas Eve service here. And... I just want to talk about the gospel. What is the gospel? And one of the things that the Holy Spirit is always doing in our life is he is redefining and defining and drilling down into our hearts and minds, our understanding of principles that we find in the Bible. So when I say the word gospel, we immediately have some concepts. When I did a Google image search for the gospel... The first few pages were just pictures of guys with a Bible screaming or, you know, on the street, street preaching. And I want to say that that is not only, that is part of the gospel, but that's not the whole thing. And when we read here Matthew 27, verses 45 through 52, we're going to start to see the gospel. I want to work backwards, and I've never done a series like this, but I want to work backwards from the death and the resurrection of Christ. I want to work backwards to Christmas Eve Sunday to where he's born. I want to look at the gospel as it's being revealed in the New Testament to us. And I know that God's going to really be blessing us and speaking to us. So pray for me and pray for us as we preach this message and this series. And let's just read this together. Now from the sixth hour, <clears throat> there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And that means that from the sixth hour, which is translated noon, from noon until 3 p.m., in the middle of the day when there was light in abundance, there was darkness all over the land, not just in Jerusalem, but Israel, and some say even in the earth. The whole earth was dark. And this was not darkness that was because of an eclipse, but this was just spiritual darkness. And verse 46, and from the ninth hour... And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Verse 47, and some of the bystanders, bystanders, and I, I, I imagine this to be the media, the bystanders, okay? The bystanders, okay? They always get it wrong, don't they? Doesn't the media get it always wrong? And some of the bystanders in the media hearing it said, this man is calling for Elijah, Right? They don't understand this is another language. And he's actually crying out to God. And one of them, at once in verse 48, ran and took a sponge, 
filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Those are the pundits, the political pundits. Let's just wait to see if God will save or if Elijah will save him. In verse 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now, this is the account of Matthew of the crucifixion. So it's sometimes called Matthew's passion. Matthew here misses two points, and this is maybe intentional. But in verse 50, Matthew misses the last two sayings of Jesus, which we read in, Luke, in, in the book of Luke and in, in John chapter 19, <clears throat> when Jesus cries out and he says, it is finished. And then he says, God, God, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And those are the two things that he cries out that are not re- recorded here in verse 50. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now the curtain of the temple, it was so thick. You know, the temple was such an interesting place because it was just filled with barriers. This was the house of God in the midst of the Jewish people. And it was filled with barriers on the inside and on the outside. They say that the curtain between the holy place and the holiest of holies was so thick that it was soundproof. Couldn't hear what was going on at the, at the mercy seat. There was no voice. There was no discussion. There was no words. There was no understanding. It was just silence. Does that sound like what's happening today? And the, the temple, curtain of the temple was torn in two, and it was torn from top to bottom. And the earth shook, the earth shook, and the rocks split. Now, this was a type of earthquake. It wasn't a normal earthquake. It was a type of earthquake where the atoms, literally the atoms that were in these rocks were breaking up. They just split. There was something more than just the earth shaking. There was an atomic, on a molecular level, there was a reaction to the darkness that was falling down on that place and the finishing of the work and the, and the dying of Christ. Verse 52, we read a very interesting verse. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Later on, it says they went into the city. In the city of Jerusalem, they begin to proclaim a message. What's happening here, I just want to say briefly here, this is, a, this is one of the many resurrections that we read of in, in the New Testament. This is a resurrection of some of the Old Testament saints that had fallen asleep or had died in faith. In faith in the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And we don't need to get too much into that today because it's a, it's a long discussion. But it's amazing that we see the moment that the curtain tears from the top to the bottom that the Holy of Holies is now open. There are no more barriers for the Gentiles, the women, the priests, the lay priests, and the priests to go directly to the throne of mercy. Isn't that awesome? That had the blood sprinkled on it. It was wide open. No more barriers. Most Christians, I would say, and including me at one point, don't know what the gospel means. We may only have a certain knowledge of it, just enough to make us feel incomplete, and that we're trying, that we're left, to, we're trying to, that we, that we're left with a mission as a Christian that we have to finish something. We wake up in the morning, and we have this sense of incompleteness, comparing ourselves with what we think we should be, or what other people think that we should be. Most of us don't know what the gospel is, and that impacts the way we look at our sanctification. If we understood the gospel, not only the gospel, but I want to talk today the passion of the gospel. Just the sermon today is going to be about the passion of the gospel. 
if we understood the passion of the gospel, and this is Thanksgiving week, in a few days we're going to be breaking out the turkey, or here in Texas the turk, uh, turk duckin, how do you say it? Yeah, how many are going to do the turk duckins this year? Shaking your heads. We're going to be breaking that out, we're going to have all the relatives, we're going to have Thanksgiving, some of our relatives are going to really get on our nerves, and uh, we need to like, I, I, want to, I want you to, <laughs> I want to prepare you this week for that, okay? And I want to talk about the passion of the gospel, and that's going to directly impact on how we understand Thanksgiving. You know the Greek, the Greek word for Thanksgiving, and I'm going to detour just for a second. I'm going to come back. It's like a little, little stop off the highway to pick up a sandwich. The Greek word for Thanksgiving is made up of, out of the word grace. Did you know that? I think you guys knew that. Thanksgiving, when we give thanks to God, and not just for the turkey, or for our job, or for our health, or for the fact that certain so-and-so is not going to be at the, at the turkey dinner with us. When we give thanks to God, you know what that means? It means that, and boy, it's great to preach in this room. I feel like, whoa, I feel like this is great. It's awesome. I feel like I can hear my voice backing up, bouncing off the back wall. When we give thanks to God, guess what happens? It's a full, it's a full reciprocation of the grace of God in my life. When you receive grace, and it starts doing its work inside of you, and it starts... You know, grace is like, it's like, I don't know, this illustration is coming to my mind. It's like these, one of these nano robots. You don't even see them, but it comes, into your, comes inside of you and starts doing stuff. It starts fixing things. It goes to work. And you don't even realize it, but you're hearing grace. And that's why we have to be careful what we're listening to, by the way. You know, there's a lot of stuff out there on YouTube. And there's a lot of stuff out there on the, on the web. And if it doesn't have the certain sound of the finished work gospel, it's going to hurt your soul. It's going to hurt you going to hurt you. It's going to, and you're not going to even realize it. You're going to get up and you're going to be like, I don't feel so good. I feel guilty. I feel like I'm not good enough. And I don't feel like I'm a good wife or a good mother or a good husband. That's, that could be because we're listening to the voice. It's not the voice of the shepherd. But you know something? The gospel comes into our life and it begins to labor. Like Paul said, it wasn't me, but it was the grace of God that was laboring inside of me. Remember that in 1 Corinthians 15? And so if we understand the passion of the gospel that we're going to talk about here in a minute, we would enter into thanksgiving, which is when I receive that gracious gospel, it does its work inside of my soul, and then it comes out of my mouth. You know, whenever, when something comes out of our mouth, that means it's, it's had full cycle. You know, something might be, might be, might be in our, you know, on, annoying us for years, and it might be in, in our heart and in our mind, and we think about it. It's eventually going to come out of our mouth. And so when we, come, when we, give, when we give thanks... And when we get together with our families and we see their faces and, we're, and we think about, I like it when I sit down at Thanksgiving table, I like to think about what God has done in these people's lives. Isn't God so faithful to my family? And we look at our kids, we look at our grandkids, we look at our, our parents or whoever we're with, our spouse we, or our friends, we say, you know something, God has been good to me. Thank you, Jesus. And when we do that, grace has had its full cycle what does it mean when Jesus cried out in a, lo- in a loud voice, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I think that this is so easy. When we look at the crucifixion story, I think we go right to our favorite part. It is finished, right? We love that. But I think that for us to understand the passion of the gospel, we need to understand that what he is saying here. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Loud voice in the Greek is a word that's never used anywhere else in the New Testament. It's a special word, and it means a scream. I mean, it's just a scream. It's like a blood-curdling scream. 
And this has troubled people for many years. It's troubled scholars. It's troubled me when I read that. When I read the Greek here, and when I read about it, it just troubles me to see that, to hear that, that our Lord Jesus Christ here is screaming. Because it looks like that Jesus breaks. It looks like he loses it. It looks like he's given up on God. It looks like he's collapsing. It looks like that God, you have, he's, it looks like he's saying, I think the Amplified actually brings it out in its translation of these verses, God, you have failed me. This is what it looks like. And such a troubling statement that almost for sure we can read this, we can understand that this not, was not made up. One thing about historians is this, is that when a historian looks at the beginning of a religion or the beginning of a movement, they can look at it with a very critical eye. And if I was starting a religion or a movement, I would not begin with it with the hero, the founder of the religion, breaking down and crying out and, and just being so dramatic and, and just so stressed and, and so much crying and screaming. Out. That would just diminish, I think, the power of what I was trying to start. But you know something? Historians see this verse and they, can say, they say, this truly, this truly happens because it is so dramatic. This statement shows that he is in, in, in an infinite way suffering when he's screaming. And sometimes, you know, this is a message that you hear at Easter, but you know something, this is a message we can listen to every day. This is the passion of the gospel. This statement shows that he is infinitely suffering when he's screaming. It's, notice, it's interesting to notice here, he does not say, oh my pain, my pain. He doesn't say, oh my feet, my feet. Oh, my head, my head. He's not saying this. He's saying, oh, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's not referring to, he's not saying, he's not saying, where are my friends, my friends? He's not saying, where's my family, my family? He's not talking about emotional or physical suffering. He is here, he is here crying out, and it is a picture of how he's been abandoned, and he's been up to this moment, it's just amazing to see, up to this moment, he's really been in control, hasn't he? He's stood before Pilate. He stood before his accusers. He stood before people that arrested him. He's, uh, he stood before people, and he's not ever lost control, has he? He's in control. He's, he's relaxed. He's calm. But at this moment, it just seems that he breaks down. And so when we look at this, and as I was studying this this week and meditating on it, it became more and more clear to me but this is a very important moment that Jesus is suffering. When the biblical writers, and you know something, it's interesting that the darkness comes down here. It says that the darkness comes down. The Greek word there is skotos. That's darkness. It's a kind of darkness. It's not only a physical darkness, but it's also a psychological darkness. It's a spiritual darkness. It's something that is, I don't know if you've ever been had a very dark period in your life where you go outside and it's sunny and you just feel darkness. That's darkness. But this darkness was so dense that it actually impacted the light, the light waves that were around the cross at the time. There was a darkness. But you know something? Darkness here is an interesting word. It's an amazing word because darkness is used more often as a metaphor to describe hell than fire is. Did you know that? This metaphor of fire is to describe hell. And I believe that hell exists I'm going to preach on that someday. Hell exists, and it's existing today, and it's a burning fire. And, and fire is an aspect of hell. I believe in hell. But you know something? The word darkness describes hell more than fire does. 
darkness is such a darkness is such a such a phenomenon that if the sun was to go out today, if the sun was to stop shining for some reason, and I know that recently here in Texas we had an eclipse. Remember that a few months ago? And I just remember the sun it just started getting dark. It wasn't a full eclipse, but I, I remember the birds stopped chirping. I don't know if you heard that. The birds stopped chirping. It got quiet. Without darkness, if the sun was to go out immediately, guess what would happen? We would immediately die. We would die just immediately. We, we would, it wouldn't even be a second, and we would be dead. We, not only physically, but psychologically and spiritually, need light. And this light, when it's eclipsed by darkness that we see that Jesus here experiences, is a very significant darkness. I had this, I don't have it here. Uh, I know Michael had it, but Michael posted something on his Facebook this week about uh, Gollum's riddle about darkness. And I don't remember what it is, but but when you read it, and if, if somebody has that, just text it to me during the message and I'll read it. <laughs> this darkness here that Gollum talks about is a riddle. And it fills empty, it's, it, it, I think that it goes like this, that what fills empty holes? What comes before death and what kills laughter? Darkness here, darkness Gollum is speaking about in his, in Tolkien's story of the Hobbit, is nothing close to what Jesus is experiencing here. Darkness in Scripture is referred to three times, I think three major times. The first time, right at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 1 and 2. Darkness here speaks of separation from God, separation from God's viewpoint, and the absence of God's presence on the earth. Isn't that amazing how the Bible starts? What a dramatic situation. It says that the Spirit of God moved upon the waters. That tells me that God was... There was a separation from God and his creation at that point. Second time we read of, of darkness is in Exodus chapter 11. Darkness was apparently so horrible, a, a palpable curse that constituted the worst of all the ten plagues that hit Egypt. This was the last and the most decisive plague in Egypt. This was a darkness that preceded the death of every firstborn child in Egypt. Darkness here speaks of the judgment of God in this in Exodus chapter 11. Jesus is being judged. Now, let's drill down into this. Let's get the full picture of what Jesus is experiencing, and then I want to bring it into a practical application. When Jesus says, my God, my God, he's being plunged into absolute spiritual darkness. Can you imagine that? He is beginning, and, you, and one writer writes it this way, he is beginning to unravel. He's beginning to go into utter spiritual destruction. I don't, I don't believe that Jesus here it stops being Jesus, and I don't believe that uh, anything about the nature of who Jesus Christ changes. But we do see here that he enters into a darkness that is so desperate. For us, it's very comforting. Uh, let's look at look at it from this perspective. I think it's up there. Thank you. When we think about darkness, and when we think about the darkness he was suffering, at that moment when Jesus is suffering, he enters into a timeless moment. Okay? Think with me here on this. This is going to help us understand the level of his suffering and how he can, as a high priest, know our personal sufferings and experience all of the darkness that we struggle with. 
Jesus here is being is experiencing the father turning his turning his eyes away from him because all of the sins of the whole world are now being piled on top of him he's being utterly thrust away from the majesty and the glory of god when we think of heaven and when we think of hell neither heaven or hell are in a time are in a state of time okay it's a timeless state an example of that in some small minute way is have you ever been in a service where the worship was so amazing and the and the, the anointing on the word of God was so incredible that you just forget about time? Have you been in a time of prayer with the Lord pouring out your heart and you sense this, this timelessness of it? And you look at your watch and you're like, my gosh, that was two hours. Where'd that go? This is just a small picture of what heaven or hell could be like. They are spiritual conditions of being in the whether in the presence of God or being utterly thrust away from the majesty and the glory of God. And that means that when people go to hell or when you and I go to heaven, there's no such thing as a sense of time. Like there's no sense of three hours in heaven or there's no sense of two days or three years in heaven, nor is there any sense of three hours in hell. There's no sense of three years in hell and there's no sense of any time in hell. Jesus was not on that cross, and get this, this is important, Jesus is not on that cross thinking if I could just get through the next three hours. He's in a timeless state of darkness and separation from God. Okay? Just let that sink in for a minute. He is experiencing something of what it truly meant to be eternally and utterly lost. Are you getting it? He would have experienced all the infinite sufferings of anyone who was eternally cast out. Because there's no sense of time on that cross. There's no sense of, he's not looking at his watch like, man, I just gotta, if I can just hang on here. He is in this moment, and he is in this eternal moment, and he's experiencing this eternal lostness, and this eternal separation from God in this darkness. He would have, what he would have experienced would be the the equivalent of an eternity of suffering separated from God. What does this mean for us? Let's look at it like this. If, if your friend for, rejects you, if you get unfriended on Facebook, <laughs> have you ever been unfriended on Facebook? You know how that feels? <laughs> Facebook's a blessing, but it's also, I think it's one of those necessary evils, right? I don't even like that term, necessary evil. But if your friend rejects you, that's terrible, isn't it? How many have ever experienced rejection from a friend? Okay. That, that's a terrible experience. How about if your spouse rejects you? And some of us in this room, that's happened to you. That's, that's more traumatic than, than really anything that you could experience, having your spouse walk out the door. How about this? How about this? How about if a child, you lose a child, maybe a miscarriage? That is a terrible separation to go through. But no wife has ever been so one with her husband, and no child has ever been so one with his parent. No soul has ever been so one with his physical body as the son was with the father. There was no closer oneness in the universe of creation that God has created where the son was as close to the father. 
You cannot get any closer than that. The relationship of Jesus Christ to his father was father and son. Why father and son? The Jehovah's Witnesses and some theological convictions believe that Jesus is lesser than God because he calls himself a son. No, father-son relationship is the closest relationship in our world of relationships that can describe love and self-sacrifice and relationship. And at this moment, Jesus is crying out, my, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When the father cast out the son, whatever he experienced would have been infinitely greater than all the hells of anyone who ever deserved, who ever deserved to go to hell. And that's why he was crying out. That's why he was screaming. That's why he was experiencing this infinite suffering in a timeless state. Is it getting clear to us this morning? The separation, the level of separation that he's experiencing. Here's the passion of the gospel. And I want to wrap it up with this. Why did he do that? Why, why did he do this? And this is the passion of the gospel. As we know here, that Jesus on the cross is quoting passages of scripture from Psalm 22. And I want to read some of these verses here with you. Future generation, let's see, David says, and this is what Jesus is quoting on the cross, Why are you so far from saving me? All who see me mock me. They hurt, they hurl insults, they shake their heads, saying, He trusts in the Lord, let the Lord rescue him, let him deliver him, if he delights in him. I'm poured out like water, my bones are all out of joint, my heart has turned to wax and has melted away within me. I am laid in the dust of death. People stare and gloat over me. They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Yet Psalm 22 ends with this verse. And get this. Future generations will be told this. Now think about this in relationship to the gospel. Future generations will be told this. He has not despised the suffering of his afflicted one. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. Future generations will proclaim his salvation to a people yet unborn. And what is it? For he has done it. Psalm 22. For he has done it. What's the point here? Jesus is on the cross and when he's crying out, my God, my God, he's saying, though God is damning me and though I'm separated from God and though... He is not looking at me. And just think about that separation and the pain of that separation. Jesus lost everything. He wasn't married. He didn't have possessions. He had, no, he had nothing that we enjoy in this life. Yet he had that one thing. And that was that time in the mountain early in the morning in his prayer time with God. He experienced that communion with the Holy Spirit. We know of the Elijah and Moses meeting with him. But how many other times do we know that God would send people like them in the Old Testament to minister to him, to speak to him. We know that angels ministered to Jesus. Jesus so relied on his relationship and his prayer and his, his relationship with the Word of God, with the Father, that at this moment he's separated from God and he's crying out. This is unbelievable. This is so difficult for him. And in his passion, he's saying, my God, my God, why, is thou, why art thou forsake? Why hast thou forsaken me? Why is he, what is he saying? He's quoting these verses in Psalm 22. For he has done it. And I think that Jesus here is thinking with a joy set before him as he's cr- hanging on that cross. He's thinking these words. He's thinking, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it. 
I'm going to stick to the plan. I'm not going to deviate. I'm going to stay to this. I'm not going to, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to change. He is saying, I'm going to stick with the plan. Why is he doing this? And this is the most beautiful thing about the grace of God and the most beautiful thing about the gospel. The answer to that question, why? It's because of you and I. Isn't that beautiful? He is separated from the Father. You know that my dog struggles with separation anxiety. If animals struggle with separation anxiety, how about people? We struggle with separation anxiety. And when we sense that anxiety of separation coming in, we remember here that Jesus here is in the heart of hell. Moby Dick in one of his books talks about the guy who was, and I was not a big reader when I was high school, but somehow this stuck, it stuck in my mind. Moby Dick is in his, he is sinking down in his ship. He's, I mean, he's sinking down with the whale. And he says, out of this, out of the heart of hell, I stab you. And he's talking about the whale. These are, this, these are just words. Moby Dick, the guy here, Moby Dick, is not experiencing what Jesus but Jesus is in the true heart of hell. And he says, I love you. God has forsaken me. I love you. And I'm not going to forsake you. Isn't that beautiful? He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And when you are in darkness, and when you sense that darkness and the sun may be shining outside, he loves us. And Jesus was there. And Jesus suffered, suffered that, that, that separation. He says, I'm holding on to you. I'm loving you. We are his passion. Isn't that beautiful? We are his passion. Thank you, Jesus. We are his passion. And when this is all happening, he is saying, I love you. Let's take this for a minute. And if we understand this, this is the gospel. This is the gospel right there. The gospel is not just me talking to somebody about the, the, the birth, the life, the death, the crucifixion, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's an awesome, beautiful part of the, of the gospel. But there's a part of the gospel that meets us where we are at in the most darkest moments of our life. It touches us in every area of our life. If the gospel means that he's willing to take infinite suffering out of infinite love for us and obey the plan of God in order to redeem us, the first thing we have to ask ourselves is this, how does this transform my life? Asking ourselves this question, what does this mean to me? You know, I was thinking this morning, you know, when, I, when, I'm, think, when I'm preparing for messages and, you know, I'm praying, I'm like, God, this is my prayer. God, just I pray that this would change people's Monday mornings. That's my prayer. You know, like when I'm preaching, when I'm studying, I'm just praying, God, just use this message to change people's Monday mornings. The gospel, and I want you to remember, if, this not, if there's nothing that you remember in this message, I just want, to re- want you to remember this sentence. The gospel is not just the way to get people to heaven, but it's the way people get to know God, who they are in this world, and how God touches other people through you. Let me repeat that. The gospel is not just the way to get people to heaven, but it's the way people get to know God. It's the way that you and I get to know God, and who we are in this world, and how God wants to touch other people through you. This is what we need to preach today. This is what we need to preach to ourselves every day. I'm going to finish with this. This is what we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Not just to the lost, not to the panhandler, not to the homeless, not to the neighbor who's living in a multi-million dollar home who's loster than lost. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every morning. Amen. We need to preach this to ourselves because when we do this, when we do this, we begin to experience out of our desperation the presence of God. 
And if we don't do this, and if this is not something that we exercise in our hearts, we don't know the gospel, we're not functioning in the gospel. God wants to bring the gospel of grace into every nook and every cranny of our soul and let him do that. That's called life. That's why we're on this earth. Every day that we are alive, every person that we talk to, every conversation we have with our kids, every, every time we interact with our neighbors, look for that moment, that gospel moment, where you can pour into that person the love and the passion of the gospel. This is what people need to hear, isn't it? This is what people need. This is what we need to hear. The passion of Christ. His love for us. His unconditional love. Because this is the passion of the gospel. Amen.